I think this crisis has, has shown us that we really need experts, but experts aren't enough because there's so much at stake and it's not clear how to balance these things. How do we balance? You know, people just talk about deaths versus dollars. Well, it's obviously more complicated than that. I think the, the first step that in recognizing that there is something above or beyond all the technical expertise that has to try to put them together in some way that isn't technical, but involves judgment, it involves courage, it involves being able to see the whole in some way uh, and respond to it, it involves knowing other people and the people you're working with, that there's something bigger that's more important than all the technical expertise that doesn't shove them aside, but has to find some way to coordinate them all. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. That was the voice of Andrew Yingert at the top of the episode. He's a professor of economics and social thought in the Bush School of Business at Catholic University of America. And in this episode, John Buckman, Beatrice Institute's executive director, has a conversation with Yingert about economics, what economists have to learn from Aristotle's ethics, the limits of rational choice theory, and what theologians stand to gain from economists and how we can apply these insights to the COVID-19 crisis. It's a great conversation, and John Buckman's going to be doing more interviews on this podcast coming up, so stay tuned for more of the good stuff. I'm John Buckman. I have with me here today Professor Andrew Yingert, who is a past president of the Association of Christian Economists and also former editor of the journal Faith and Economics. Thank you so much for being with me today. Yes, glad, I'm glad to be here. So I'm looking forward to your thoughts about uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, but before we get to those, I'd like to ask you a few questions about your research. Now, you're one of a few, uh, of growing number, actually, of economists who are engaging philosophy in the process of, of their research. And in fact, all three of your books are engaging ethical questions, and that trend seems to be continuing. Uh, now, what led you to these topics? Well, um, thanks for the compliment. I'm not sure most philosophers would think I was uh, being very rigorous in, in philosophical terms, but I, I try to take philosophy seriously. And uh, a lot of philosophers have been really helpful in guiding my reading, correcting me when I go wrong, and uh, generally tolerating my, my trespassing. What led, what led me to this work? I as an undergrad in the 80s, I was uh, in love with economics. It seemed to answer all the questions I had. thought it had all the answers, really. Uh, but I was also a, a Catholic, a serious Catholic at the time, and still am. And so I took church teaching seriously. And uh, the bishops at the time were saying things that seemed at odds with what I was learning in economics. They're saying different things. And so I was Catholic. I wasn't philosophical, but I was Catholic enough to know that truth really shouldn't be contradicting truth. And uh, they both seemed like they were saying true things. And I sort of assumed there'd be a way to put them into conversation. So I was always, at the beginning, challenged by church teaching to grapple with it, um, struggle with it, try to find some way to reconcile it with the other things I thought were, were true. 
So I, was, I kept reading. I, I was at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for a while in the early 90s. And about four years after I finished my PhD, a conventional PhD in economics, I turned my attention to Catholic thought on economics. I had been reading, and I knew I needed to read a little bit more widely in philosophy to kind of understand the background. Uh, I didn't have any. I wasn't really, as an undergrad, didn't read anything in philosophy or enough to know that I didn't think philosophy was very interesting, at least what they were teaching me. So I picked up a copy of Aristotle's Ethics and uh, just started reading, taking notes. And while I was reading it, I could, I could feel that it was rearranging my mind and the way I thought about these questions. And I've been in conversation with Aristotle ever since. That's really where I got started. Now, you wrote a book, The Boundaries of Technique, uh, where you explored the relationship between ethics and economics. Could you tell us a little bit about how you see these intersecting? Yeah. So when I, I was so as an economist in the '90s, trying to figure out, you know, reading about what other economists and philosophers are saying about economics and ethics. When you read that literature, and it, I don't know how much better it is today, you quickly run into arguments about the fact-value distinction. Economists often defend their work by saying, well, our work is about what is, about facts. And logically, that's separate from what ought to be, right? or, or, or ethics. You know, we're about statistics and math, and what does that have to do with ethics? You know, and, and so the stuff I'm telling you, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you the relationships that are out there and the trade-offs. Much of the attack, so when you read philosophy on economics and ethics and the critiques, a lot of it is an attack on this fact-value distinction as, a, as employed by economists. It's all very analytical. It's very careful in discussions about argument and meaning. And it shows pretty clearly that there aren't any real value-free facts out there, that, that you really can't support this sort of neutrality for economics based on, on the value neutrality of facts. So th these arguments are good. They're convincing in some ways. But what's odd about it and this was true of me as well, is they don't really have much of an impact on economists. Economists just kind of shrug their shoulders when you, when you give them these arguments and treat them as if they're kind of irrelevant. I don't think this is because economists don't understand them. It's just that their defense of some sort of neutral ground for economics really doesn't depend on the fact-value distinction. They, they cite it, they invoke it in other terms, but when it disappears, they're still left with this idea that you know, I don't know what I do has to do with ethics. And that leads me to think that they're really not grounding it on the fact-value distinction because it doesn't have an impact on them when they can see that, yeah, facts have some value implications as well. So their reaction and my own reaction is very telling, and I've seen this several times when economists are confronted by non-economists with these kind of arguments. Their reaction is, well, I don't, I don't know how that's relevant Tell me how what you're saying would change what I do. What does this have to do with what I'm doing as an economist? And so they're looking for practical implications for these critiques. And it seems like these criticisms of fact value don't seem relevant to their day-to-day -day life as an economist. And this reaction is really the opening for Aristotle, because Aristotle is a theory of human action. What should we do differently? And so my second reading through the ethics, after I'd been through these kind of debates with people, I came to the part where he, he's describing the different kinds of reason employed in action. And it just the distinctions he's making just leapt out at me. And it, it seemed to me that this is the distinction that economists are really hanging their hat on. And you can see some of this in the history of economics as well, that Aristotle makes this distinction between 
several different kinds of reason, but the two that are really relevant is between technique, which is really reasoning about making something as part of a, a, of a developed practice, where there are canons of practice that have developed through long making. And, uh, and the other kind of reason that's relevant to here is, is what he calls prudence, or I think a better term these days is practical wisdom, which is reasoning about what to do in the context of your life as a whole. So practical wisdom is the arena of ethics. What should I do? What should we do? Technique or technical activity, like I think economics fits into this, has a certain defensible separation from practical wisdom and ethics, but it's not a full separation. It's not a logical separation like the fact-value distinction. It's just because a lot of what you do as an economist is guided by the ways things have developed, you know, the technique of economics, the statistics and the theoretical technique. And at some point, yeah, yeah, of course, it is related to ethics, but there's a separation between it as well, just like there's a separation between any technique and your moral life as, 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 a, as a whole. So the boundary of techniques just takes this insight and explores it. If economics is like a technique, what's the relationship between technique and your moral life as a whole? The moral life's where, so, so I'm really focusing on not economic models, but researchers and their life. So what, what does my life as a person have to do with my life as an economic researcher involved in this very technical activity? There is some separation, but it's not a full separation. And actually, if you, if you ignore that broader life, your life as a person or the bigger questions of ethics, there's a nice literature out there about what happens when you, you're a technician without regard to any questions of ethics or your life as a person. Aristotle didn't address them because he didn't really consider that as something that was, wasn't a live question for him. But in a modern setting where we rely so heavily on technique without trying to get into those bigger questions, you have a bunch of technicians without, without reflection on the broader life. And the danger of that is you start treating your technique as if it's the whole. Economists treating it like, well, what really matters is GDP or consent and exchange. Uh, sociologists sort of thinking they've got the entire picture. Modern life, we're, we're full of technicians who don't see the larger picture and are tempted to elevate whatever they happen to be doing as the picture of that whole. What might you say to theologians, ethicists, philosophers who frequently discount economics altogether? Because that's one reaction, maybe, to this uh, strong separation of, of fact-value, is that people will say, well, we don't really need economists because we have Aristotle. Right. So what, what, do, so what, what economists can learn from the moral philosophers, moral theologians, is, is that critique of their basic model of, of how humans act in the world. I think theologians and philosophers can learn something from economists. I think this may be more true of theologians than it is of philosophers, but I, I think they tend to be sort of, their standard for the world is sort of all or nothing. There's, there's, no, there's no trade-off. There's, so if you're a theologian, there's the kingdom, and then there's everything that falls short of the kingdom. Economists are a lot more comfortable with, um, you know, pretty good is better than pretty, you know, than just okay. They're more comfortable with something in between that, including with their own models. It's a pretty good model. It doesn't, ex it doesn't capture everything. I, th I think economists have that to offer, but they also have a pretty, they have a lot to offer on sort of understanding unintentional order. 
and you know the Austrian economists would call it spontaneous order. But economists in general, even if they're not you know libertarians or Austrians, are very respectful of the fact that there there's order to markets that nobody is intending. That doesn't mean that uh, you, people who are not economists think, oh, that means that, uh, that whatever the market does is best. That's not the same thing as saying there's an order out there and you, you should respect it and at least understand it because uh, and make use of it. And I think that's something that economists can offer to theologians and philosophers that they really, that they're missing. Also, just, just a, a healthy understanding of um, how to interpret social reality, uh, particularly in data. Economists are very good at looking at, at data and, and at least talking through or trying to understand what you can and can't infer from data. So people who are not economists, I've seen this from theologian philosophers, who say, say well, you know, we, we, we can't trust the economists, but, and then we see this go up and this, this is going up, so obviously this is what's going on. Economists professionally are trained to be very skeptical of that and work very hard imperfectly to try to figure out what it means to say that this is causing that and how do we know that from data and how do we not know that. In uh, 2012, you wrote a book, Approximating Prudence, where you zoomed in on the the, uh, notion of prudence. Could you tell us what you were doing in that work? In Boundaries, I was really talking about what economists do as persons and the boundary between their work as economists and the decisions they make and then the decisions they're making as human beings and their life in general and how those two fit together. In Approximating Prudence, I I really look more closely at, at a particular tool that economists use, the rational choice model. Rational choice is basically human choice designed as a calculus problem. Uh, you specify your goals really clearly, and you find uh, what all the trade-offs you're willing to make between them in exact ways, and you figure out what your constraints are, and you quantify them as well. And then you basically solve for the optimal choice. Right? What do you want? What can you get? And then you pick what's best out of what you can possibly get. Critics of economics argue that people don't choose this way. And economists respond to this by saying, well, we know that. This is just an approximation. We're not claiming that this is exactly what people do. One thing that, that, that when I thought more about this, that struck me was that they, they argue that the economists, we argue that what we have is an approximation, but we don't talk very much about what we're approximating. And to know that something is a, an approximation or a good approximation, you have to have some idea of what it is you're trying to approximate. So I got into this, I, again, the, the seed for this book was very early in my reading of, of Aristotle's ethics. And very in the very, very first chapter, when he describes human action, he, he says you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't attempt to be too precise about it, um, that there's only so far that precision can go in explaining these sorts of things. Now, I was a well-trained economist. I, hopefully I still am. But at the time, out of grad school, I, my f- response when I read that was, it's impossible to be too precise about these things. Well, you know, give a creative economist a month or two, and I bet we could come up with a pretty good description, a formal description of this. And that's really, I always wanted to sort of see how far economics could push itself to actually be precise about these things. So basically in this book, I want to know what it would mean for a rational choice model to be a good approximation or bad approximation. And so I take practical wisdom as what's being approximated because the description of practical wisdom is sort of this very comprehensive description of what it's like to act in the world. And so I ask what, kind, what aspects of choice that are described by practical wisdom can be captured in a rational choice model, and what aspects can't be captured in that model. 
So just to describe what, what I find there, economics is a better approximation than its critics think, because they're very critical of it. But it does fall short, and it will always fall short. So it's not a matter of, well, economists just don't happen to care enough to get the full description right. There will always be a gap between a formal description of action, like a rational choice model, and actually acting in the world. So it's not a matter of just adding more mathematical wrinkles. In fact, economists think, well, all we need to do is make the model more complex. But the, the deficiencies of the model are actually really simple. Maybe people are not able to compare all the goods or even aware of all the possible goods that they could achieve in a particular situation. They're not able to construct probability distributions, for example. Uh, they're, they're managing themselves and their own passions at the same time they're trying to choose in the world and decide what kind of person they're trying to become. Those are, th those are not um, shortcomings of a model that ha hasn't become complicated enough. Those are really basic foundational problems that you can't overcome by just adding on another layer of mathematics to, to a particular model. One important insight that I got from this book, and it, it shaped my thinking since then, is that the, sh the shortcomings of rational choice are unavoidable. You, you can't push it so that it can get there. It can't capture the reality of, of actually making a choice as a person. But this isn't a shortcoming of, of economics. It's just a fact of, of a technical approach to this topic. So at the same time, I, I argue that economists shouldn't give up what they do. In fact, when people come to me, I say, become a good economist, but be aware that there's a gap between what you're trying to model and what is actually happening when people make decisions. In other words, there's a big difference between being an economist working on these kinds of models, unaware that no matter how hard you pushed them, they would, there would always be a, that gap between what you're doing and what it actually means to act. There's a difference between an economist who's unaware of that gap and an economist who knows that, that. I think you have a better appreciation for what you're doing, or the limitations of it, uh, how to employ the model. In fact, you might be able to help people to understand, well, this is what the model can do, and this is what's going to be left out of it. So if we were to, to make the transition to looking at the models that are being used right now, what are the best models uh, being used uh, to address the impact of the, the COVID-19 crisis? I think uh, economists are, uh, if you go to like the NBER working paper website, you see economists acting like economists and actually doing things that are quite, quite, uh, quite helpful. There isn't one model of this. Economists are, are using their statistical skills to investigate things like the role of the subway in New York in the infection rates. I think they're getting involved with epidemiologists in ways where I think there'll be a really useful collaboration, if not now, in, in, into the future. They're using their macro models to sort of estimate the, uh, the costs of this, of the shutdown in the future, and thinking carefully about how to estimate death rates and even infection rates and how to infer them using their skills as a uh, as economists in all of this. And then there are others who are just using the concept of, you know, from uh, public economics of uh, externalities to try to estimate one, what people think the external costs of their actions are if they're going out and socializing uh, versus what the estimates of what the real costs are. So economists from lots of different directions, I think, are offering a lot of uh, important insights in this, uh, not because they're uh, not being economists, but because they're actually applying their tools. And I, I think in ways that are adding a lot of insight in the sense that economists 
are usually pretty careful about the way they talk about, you know, they, they, they will estimate the value of a life. But in an environment like this, there have been several articles where they'll, they'll come out and say, well, you need to know exactly what we mean by this. And this, uh, this may not be the appropriate value to use in a situation like this because it was uh, estimated in some other way. So I think um, they're contributing by using some of their theoretical insight, specifying what the trade-offs are, and not claiming that they know how those trade-offs should be um, adjudicated or judged, which I think is, is uh, doing the sort of things economists can be useful in doing in a situation like this. Uh, do you have any insight into how sort of a, a more refined notion of prudence might be useful for us um, in thinking how to use these models or how to address our own activities. I think, um, and this isn't just for economists, this would be for anybody who's an expert. So this would be an epidemiologist. I think this crisis has, has shown us that we really need experts, but experts aren't enough. We, we know, okay, so we have epidemiologists who have their models and the good ones are being very uh, candid about the shortcomings of it and the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty out there. We, we need people who can estimate that. We need people who are experts in logistics of medical care. We need uh, economists to talk about what's, what the trade-offs in the economy might be. We need all of those analyses, but I think this highlights the fact that we need something more because there, there's so much at stake and it's not clear how to balance these things. How do we balance? You know, people just talk about deaths versus dollars. Well, it's obviously more complicated than that because the dollars are people's livelihoods. There, there's a lot of human flourishing at stake when, people, when we shut down an economy. There's civil, you know, civil liberties at stake potentially. Uh, how do you balance all of those some people, you see some people in an environment like this where they just choose one and run with it. Right? So it's all about deaths. Right? We're all about deaths from COVID-19. Or other people just saying, well, you know, it's all really about the economy. Um, well, some of that comes from, I think, an attachment to a particular ideology. Sometimes it's also an attachment to a particular expertise, a particular technical expertise that it finds it difficult to say, well, there's more to this than that. I can't discount as an, as an economist that a potential depression is very costly. I can't discount that, that it's not worth it to save, to save lives in this pandemic where we have all this uncertainty. I think the, the first step that in recognizing that there is something above or beyond all the technical expertise that has to try to put them together in some way that isn't technical but involves judgment it involves courage. It involves being able to see the whole in some way uh, and respond to it. it. Involves knowing other people and the people you're working with. That there's something bigger that's more important than all the technical expertise that doesn't shove them aside, but has to find some way to coordinate them all. Now, if somebody wanted to learn more about this topic that you've been working on, where would you direct them? Aside from you know, my books, yeah. Aside um, from your work, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, if, if, if um, I think about this, because every so often I'll have an undergraduate uh, economic student who wants to go on to do PhD work, and I always think about what should I have them read? And the first thing I'll give them when they graduate before they go on to the PhD program is I'll give them a copy of The Ethics. And I'll tell them, you know, I know this is all going to disappear while you're really wrestling with this PhD program, but you should read it first because it should be it should be there for you at some point. I would recommend to anybody just start with Aristotle's Ethics. It's not, uh, you know, it's not written in a narrative style, but uh, there's just something about it that uh, is, is so accessible. I found 
And of course, Aquinas is uh, you know the second part of the Summa, where he talks about human action and all the virtues. I would also say a book that's been really helpful to me that even though it's, a, it's an academic book, um, it's written very well is uh, Julia Annis's book, Intelligent Virtue. came out in about 2011. When you talk about virtue, and, and to my mind, virtue is basically what fills that gap between any sort of description of how to act and actually acting. So it fills the gap between any sort of technical or formal description of what you should do in a situation and actually having to actually do something. But she, she draws on the analogy between excellent performance in things like sailing and music, musicianship and sports. There are analogies between excellence in those activities and the virtues in general and practical wisdom. I found that a really helpful book because she just pushes it as far as you can push it. There's so much insight there about the fact that there's that being good at something, whether it's even being a good economist or a good leader, it's not enough to know things. There's, a, there's this interaction between experience and knowledge and the habits that you develop in doing that. That's true in all kinds of excellent performance, and there are analogies there that you can develop to really make this really vivid. I'd also uh, suggest uh, Mary Hirschfeld's book on uh, Aquinas in the Market. Uh, she doesn't focus entirely on, on virtue, she, but, uh, but she is talking about how to think about economics in this uh, sort of natural law framework. It's always good to have popular books to, to turn to that really help, help you to bring this, these ideas out. I'd say Barry Schwartz and uh, Kenneth Sharp's book on practical wisdom, the, uh, what's it called, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing, uh, came out about four or five years ago. Uh, it's a fantastic book, just as a way to describing, like in workplaces, you know, the difference between a job description and somebody who's really good at doing their job. What's different? Well, practical wisdom is what's different. It's virtue that's added on to anything you could describe in what you're doing and actually doing it. Yeah, I would say that those are probably... Joseph Pieper, his book, The Four Cardinal Virtues, really helped me in getting started on this, just as a description of what practical wisdom was. Well, those are great, great recommendations. Now, while we've got you, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now? Uh, Give us a, a little taste. I'm still trespassing on philosophy, but I've decided to throw on theology as well. So I've, I've got a manuscript that's under review right now uh, called Prophecy and Praxis, Practical Wisdom and Catholic Social Teaching. I've always wanted to write on this. Uh, it, it started out as a, as a narrow project, but it's ended up being a much, much broader than I ever thought it would be when I started it. I thought I was going to talk about politics and how the fact that people of goodwill could disagree, even if they agreed on the principles, and, and so practical wisdom would be important. But the more I read about the literature on Catholic social thought, what struck me was, in academic literature, there's very little mention of virtue at all, let, let, let alone practical wisdom. You get these major pieces, major books, really good books, that don't even act as if virtue is not part of Catholic social teaching. And, and so it's a much bigger problem than just, oh, what should we do in politics? You know, the, the social sciences that Catholic thought is engaged with as dialogue partners— uh, don't have a place for virtue, don't really understand virtue. Economics certainly doesn't. And philosophy, I mean, uh, psychology treats it as a, sort of a behaviorist kind of habit. So the social science partners that Catholic social thought's involved with don't even recognize virtue. They can't really talk about it. Catholic social thought itself, when I read it, and the more I got into it, 
it talks about practical wisdom, but in kind of a kind of like an afterthought. If you if you go and you say, "Oh, I want to learn about practice. I want to learn about Catholic social thought." What they'll do is, is they'll give you a book or put you in a church basement and they'll teach you principles and maybe some political issues. And then at some point they'll say, "Well, okay, go out and and do likewise. You know, go out there and apply all of this." And there's this thing called practical wisdom that's important because every situation may be a little bit different. That's really a, a practical wisdom doesn't have much to do there. Right? It comes in after all the principles have been developed and the really important parts of Catholic social thought are in place. And then you go out there and oh yeah, go go do something. And the circumstances may be a little different, and you may have to adjust a little bit. Uh, that's not really practical wisdom from the the natural law tradition. Practical wisdom in action itself and in deliberation integrates principles, uh, motivation, because in Catholic social thought, you can teach somebody principles, but then the question is, well, how do you motivate them to even do it? Well, if you talk about the virtues and the virtue of practical wisdom, virtues integrate principle, application, the practical matter, and motivation. So you wouldn't ask anybody who was practically wise, well, how are you going to motivate yourself to do this? Well, virtue is not like that. It would be like you know, telling somebody who's an excellent basketball player, well, how do you get motivated to play basketball? Well, that's not. You know. So so practical wisdom has a lot more to do than just sort of come in and bat clean up once all the people are on base and all the principles are in place. And if you want it to be effective, if you want the, the church, and particularly the laity, to be effective, the virtues are crucial to the way the church, church organizes itself and thinks about its mission. So this book is basically sort of highlighting that uh, that different way of thinking about Catholic social thought, and then doing something of a prudential audit of Catholic social thought in in light of this broader understanding of of, uh, of the virtues in general and practical wisdom, not as something that comes in after the experts have developed the principles. Thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.